Mac Power Users, episode 707, Workflows with Ryan Ireland. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I am going solo today. Mr. Hackett's out sick. I will say that I was sick last week, but I made very careful efforts not to cough into the microphone, so it's not my fault. But Stephen isn't here this week, but that's okay. You don't have just me. Along with me today is my friend, Ryan Ireland. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, David. Thanks. Great to be here. Ryan and I have known each other for years. Ryan is also a, a video teacher, uh, focusing mainly on web web development. But uh, I don't know when we first met Ryan, but it's you've been banging around the internet a long time, paying for your shoes. <laughs> That's right. Oh, gosh, it probably has something to do with, I don't know, Markdown and Max. I'm not yeah. really sure. Probably. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah. The early days of Markdown. I feel like at the, you know, back in the day, because Markdown came out and web nerds were using it, but nobody else. But then when the iPhone showed up and didn't have a rich text editor, mm-hmm. like all the nerds figured out that, oh, the way to do rich text on the iPhone is with Markdown. And it was like that those were fun days, kind of like sharing that and like every new Markdown app. I don't know if you remember Terpster at one point had a spreadsheet of every Markdown app for the yes. iPhone. Yeah. We, you know, we all had like, um, you know, our favorite Markdown apps. And yeah, that, those were good times. Those were good times. And I feel like, I don't know if Markdown ever broke through completely, but uh, if I can tell you a quick story, sure. um, I, I was able to do a, a few training classes at Johnson Space Center in uh, in Houston. That is a Houston. humble brag, my friend. Right uh, there. Yeah. Um, but they, but it was really funny because uh, in and I was teaching them Git version control and the way that NASA works is they have all these independent teams and they come together and yeah. you know connect like their different parts of a project. And so they, they wanted their software developers to move from Subversion version control to Git version control. So this was several years ago. I was brought in to do the training. Yeah. And one of the, um, one of the uh, people I was training, he worked on some of the documentation for like these, uh, what did they measure? Like some de- old devices from like the early space era that they were still using to measure something in space. Gosh, I wish I, could, I would know, remember what yeah. it was, but he, the documentation he was converting from whatever this old format they had he was converting it all to markdown and he was like showing me like his scripts that he was using to convert this all to markdown that's nice that's it nice. was so funny i remember I, I i messaged john gruber like right after that i was like they're using markdown at nasa this is so cool yeah they, they gotta you know they gotta study the dilithium crystals or something like that right right right, yeah. right but i feel like it has maybe it has like kind of broken out into like the larger nerd verse than just yeah. the, you know like our types of people here well, the thing about Markdown is even if you don't know Markdown, you can still read it and it makes sense. Like you see right. an asterisk around it, you're like, oh, that's emphasis. I get that. You know, so yep. I feel like a lot of people read Markdown without realizing they read Markdown, you know. Which is the whole point, right? Yeah. Eddie Smith and I wrote a whole book about Markdown a long time ago, early into it. And then like yeah. I'm in the I'm finishing up my obsidian field guy right now, and there's a section teaching Markdown, and now it's just like reduced to like i don't know 10 or 15 minutes of video <laughs> because it's just there's just not that much to it right. i had a uh, ex- similar experience with nasa though when the um, at some point they wanted uh, they contacted me to get multiple licenses to the paperless field guide because they were going to do some paperless implementation oh, cool. they wanted their people to read it and my head would literally not fit through the door that day i i, I was stuck <laughs> in the room i could not leave 
I don't know. What is it about us? Yeah. I don't know. I, I remember not sleeping very well, like before that first night, um, or, but that first night before that first class that I taught, cause I was so like nervous. Um, cause I, ha- I hold the whole institution, you know, in high regard and, yeah. uh, the nicest like people, um, that, and, and it's diverse and super nice. It was just like a real joy, uh, to, to hang out with those people. Cause they're just, they're just normal people doing, doing their job. Right. But we, yeah. but the things that they do collectively is so amazing. Well, we have several NASA employees in the Mac Perry's audience. Every time we do a live meetup, I, I bump into them and oh, that's cool. it's just, it's, it's, to me, it's kind of like intimidating when you find out yeah. someone that smart <laughs> is listening to it. It's like, Oh my God, what am I yeah. going to do? <laughs> you know, the, uh, but the, uh, either way, uh, Ryan, it's great to have you here. We're going to get into a bunch of stuff today before we dig in, even though we've already kind of dug in a bit, yeah. uh, some preliminary announcements. Uh, one is I have a newsletter. I'm not sure that people listening to the show know that, but I've been making a real effort to improve the quality and frequency of my newsletter. And I've got some big news coming out later this week. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes. If you'd like to sign up for the newsletter for uh, Max Sparky, I'd really appreciate it. Um, the other thing is Relay has a live show. Uh, the last time we did a live show for Relay was the five-year anniversary. And then some stuff happened and we stopped doing live shows, but we are resuming the effort. We're doing our 10 year anniversary of relay. It's going to be on the 27th of July, 2024 in London. We're doing it. We're going over to Mike this year. Instead of going to San Francisco, we're heading to London. I'm going to be there. Steven's going to be there. Uh, Rosemary. I think Mike Schmitz is going to be there. A lot of the relay hosts are going to be there. It's really fun the way they're formatting it. We're going to have a bunch of hosts on the show. There's tickets available. Uh, the venue is called the Hackney Empire, and it's a year away, so you got time to you know sign up. If you want to take a trip to London, you should, and you should do it so you're there on the 27th of July, 2024. We'll put the link to that in the show notes, so go please check it out. Love to see you there. And then lastly, on more power users today, um, which is the ad-free extended version of the show, Ryan and I were talking offline about um, digital devices and teenagers and like what are our best strategies to help uh, protect the kids and probably some adults too with uh, these distraction devices. And uh, I thought it was really fun talking about, we're going to go into that deeper today in more power users. So stick around for that if you're a more power user subscriber. But, uh, but Ryan, tell us a little bit about you and your journey. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my my background in terms of like education is in uh, German studies. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So I went, uh, I kind of bounced around. I'm probably very typical for at least my generation. Uh, I think, I guess I'm a Gen Xer yeah. is that I kind of like made my own journey. Um, sure. and, uh, had, you know, um, I majored in music at first and then I majored in, recording industry, which is basically like you learn how to work in a studio. And this was all like through uh, university yeah. and then photography. And then, um, and then I actually dropped out of college because I didn't like, I was kind of wasting my parents' money at that point. And so, um, and ended up living, uh, over in Germany for, uh, like maybe 18 months, 20 months, something like that. Um, because my, uh, girlfriend, now my wife, 
uh, is, is from Germany. And so I just okay. moved over, sold all my stuff and moved over there and ended up um, going to school there to learn German because that's kind of required if you're going to live there. Yeah. And uh, after we got married, I came back and re-enrolled in college as one does when they realize that they are now an adult and have to, you know, take care of their life and, and decided just to major in German. So I, I got my undergraduate degree and then I went to graduate school for two years and got a master's degree in German studies. And out of that, I realized that I really enjoy teaching because as a graduate student, um, the, like the, I forget what they call it, but it's not an appointment, but whatever the, the stipend thing I had, like the scholarship I had, part of that was teaching. Sure. I taught undergraduates like elementary German. And I realized that I was like, I really enjoyed it. Um, I was pretty good at it. I was way better at teaching than I was at being like a research grad student for sure. That was not like my, where I excelled. Yeah. And so I, uh, uh, I kind of just like said, oh, I really like this. Finished grad school, got a job at a, uh, an ed tech company and uh, just started working with their development team. Um, first as a QA tester and then, uh, doing web development, like just the web stuff. And, um, that's when I started, uh, kind of dabbling in, uh, like creating training courses for, and that back then it was for like this content management system I was working with back then. Yeah. And, uh, that's 2008, I think is when I published like my first screencasts and yeah, just ever since then I was, you know, just really got hooked on this idea of, uh, of teaching. And that's had always been on the side. Um, cause I was working as like a web developer. Um, I worked at a company, an agency called happy cog out of, um, at the time they were out of like Philadelphia and Austin. Now they're, um, out of New York city. Um, was like the head of technology there. And then 2014, I left just kind of, you know, we've had similar paths, David, like we, we kind of left our main career to go do um, you know, the thing that we really love to do, like the training and writing and publishing. But then I was always doing like consulting on the side um, to stay, you know, fresh and relevant. Yeah. So it kind of came out of like just learning German. Um, the idea, like when you learn a language, the best way to learn is in what they call like, uh, like total immersion. So in a, yeah. like you basically just, you have to live it. Uh, and I realized that um, there's a similar way of, of teaching a uh, like a programming language or a pro or, or a technical topic. And you do that with like a, some sort of project based, like, you know, reality based project. So you're not teaching people, you know, you're teaching people like how to build something. So when they're done learning, they actually have a thing that they created and uh, it's very similar in language learning. Yeah. You don't say this is an if then statement. You say this right. is an if then statement to solve a specific problem. Exactly. Yeah. And I, wrote a, um, a book, actually, uh, I actually wrote a half of a part, part of a book on podcasting, believe it or not. Did you know that? No. Um, yeah. yeah, this was 2006, maybe. Well, I hope your recording comes out good or you're going to lose all. I know, right? I should know. Yeah. This is yeah. like early, early, um, on. And I just wrote like the technical parts of like, like how an RSS feed works. Like this was before we have this robust, like infrastructure that we have now. Yeah. Back when we'd have to go and manually set the RSS. Right. Yeah. Right. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But then I did this other technical book on the CMS called expression engine. And 
I worked with a publisher called Pragmatic Programmers, and they are like programmers first, but they care a lot about how like you teach. And they use this concept, you know, of the hero's journey as a way of like their, um, it's like their template for teaching where you're guiding the person reading your book that you're teaching through the journey. And at the end, like, obviously they're the hero. They've accomplished this, this, this ultimate thing. And they kind of reinforce this idea of, um, you know, teaching through real world, um, like, you know, app building or tool building or whatever, like just teaching through real world usage. Yeah. And that kind of like reinforced it for me. And I applied that then to the screencasts um, that I've been creating. I don't know if we call them screencasts anymore, but training videos is kind of where this all uh, sort of ended up. I, I do think, I do though think on that point, like if you want to change your life, it is epic for you. So you should make it epic. And I feel like that actually provides a lot of inspiration to people to get through the hard part of the change because it's not easy making a change. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel like the older I get, the harder it feels. The, the, other, thing I, the other thing I was thinking, listening to you, is you made the point about us being Gen Xers, but I really think we are, because I am too, I feel like we are the gener first generation that had the freedom to make multiple career changes like that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'm, I guess I'm being presumptuous, but looking at the generations before us, our parents, generally your life a lot of times was you got into a job and you stuck with it. In fact, that was yeah. the big thing. My parents were um, depression babies and their whole thing was, you know, get a job, be good at it and, and do a good job and be a valuable employee. And then you'll be okay. Cause that's the, you know, they, they grew up with that uncertainty where people got let go so often. And, and, um, and I feel like my, the generations uh, two that I'm aware of before me, didn't have the options that I did. Like the idea of going to law school and then eventually becoming a podcaster to my parents would have been just madness. Right. <laughs> and, and I, I do think that you and I uh, are, are fortunate to be at the time and place we were. Yeah. I think it's way more accepted to, to make that journey. You know, my parents are, I think they're technically silent generation because they're, they're just like a few years shy of, of, being uh, baby boomers. Yeah. But I, I, but I think there's a lot of like similarities between, you know, them and baby boomers. But one thing that I've always appreciated, especially as, as I've gotten older is just their willingness to let me do like and explore and try things and, and not, maybe they like quietly worried about me and what I was going to become. Um, but they let me kind of like take different journeys and just, and just figure it out. And yeah. not, um, and not try to preach, like, you know, preach to me about how to do it. You know, my dad was a lifelong, like Bell Labs, like AT&T employee. Um, I say lifelong, but I mean, he really only, he, he retired when he was 55, but very much just like, you know, one company, um, retire, you know, as early as you can, and then just, you know, go do like your retirement life. Yeah. And to me, that sounds just not as interesting. I'd rather have multiple interesting journeys. Um, it's definitely more Gen X. Definitely. I feel like it was, it was socially acceptable to do what we do. I feel like now it's, um, it feels almost completely normal, right? Like it's lots of people are, are going out into all these like branches of life journeys earlier yeah. in life in their twenties. Oh, I agree. And like millennials take such a beating 
from everybody, you know, yeah. the people older than them. But I do think in some ways they, they, they're wise to the world in the ways that we weren't right. You know, mm-hmm. they, they are interested in quality of life and they are interested in trying different things more so than, than us. You know, they've, they've grown up in a, in an era where they have more opportunities. I, I can't wait to see with the, the next gen. I don't know what you call the ones going through college now are, do they have a name yet? They're Z gen Z, right? Yeah. Well, my kids are gen Z and watching them, they are questioning everything. And I think mm-hmm. that is super interesting to see what they do with the world um, because they're yeah. not, they're not taking anything for granted. I guess we could make that another show someday. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it is fun. And I, I, I like, I've been on that journey with you. It's like uh, you, you started out creative and you ended up creative and you had a couple stops in the middle. Yeah. And I've had um, like jobs like here and there, like I would have a client that would be like, Hey, like, can you come on full time and do this, you know, thing with us? And I'll be like, yeah, I'll do that. And then after, you know, 18 months, I would realize like, Oh, like this actually isn't for me. And, you know, it's just not like how I want to spend my limited time is yeah. doing this thing. I have other things that I want to do. And so that's why the training thing. So I have, so right now my main training thing is craft quest. Yeah. Um, which is a, uh, I launched it in 2018. It's a subscription training site for craft CMS and modern web development. And uh, that's like my main training thing. And then uh, Pineworks is like the, the consulting side of, of my world. And those are really the two main things that I do day to day for, for work. Well, you know, I feel like it's an interesting journey and, and I, I'm really happy to hear kind of how you've been on it. And I know Steven's not here and we just went down the hippie part for almost 20 minutes, <laughs> but I could go further, but I'm going to step back. Uh, let, let's take a minute, Ryan, though, uh, check in. You got to prove your bona fides for the Mac power users audience. Tell oh us, tell, tell us about your gear. Okay. Uh, all right. So my, my daily computer is a, 14 inch M1 MacBook Pro. That's really the thing that I use for just daily tasks, coding. You know, obviously it goes on the road with me if I'm traveling. And in my office, I connect that to uh, this like old LG 4K monitor that I have that I've been like on a quest this week to replace. So I'm curious, maybe you have some feedback on that. But that's like my my main thing. I also have on my desk a 27-inch uh, 5K iMac. That is really, like, that's what I'm recor- like recording right now on, talking through. That's sure. like my video production machine. Yeah. Um, I use it for uh, recording, screencasts, live streaming, and editing on Final Cut. And um, I, I did that, because, and it's like maxed out with RAM, um, a third-party RAM whatever the highest is that I can put in there. 128. I can't remember. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm actually thinking about getting rid of that too. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we kind of moved on, right? I mean, they're at M2 talking about M3. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I would guess for some of the stuff you want to teach on, you'd probably want to have the int or the Apple Silicon software running for that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff I, I teach it's web development that tends to be, you know, work, you know, on any machine, although I do, you know, record like on a Mac. And I yeah. think it's by far the, the best type of computer to use for web development. It's the easiest to work with. Um, lots of people use Windows. 
for making that happen. It's gotten way better on the Windows side of things than it used to be, but I still feel like Mac is like the first class experience. And it's also got the terminal and, you know, right. are you, are you a BB edit guy? I mean, so many web developers uh, are. I'm not anymore. Although my first job out of grad school, I was, I was all in, all in BB edit. Yeah. I used to know web developers that switched to the Mac just to use BB edit. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the, well, we can talk about this like software for web development if, if you want, but, uh, it's come so far and it's, yeah. there's some amazing experiences. So, I, but I do want to disappoint your listeners though, because I, I want to get to my iPhone. Well, wait, I want to talk about your monitor first though. Okay, so sure. You, you need a new monitor and yeah. you've got two choices. You can give Apple 6,000 or 1,600. <laughs> um, well, I, first of all, I, I have a studio display. I almost say that with shame in my voice because I do not deserve a studio display. Mm. The way I got mine was I traded an iMac Pro for it. Back, you okay. know, when I, I saw the the writing on the wall, and uh, and I knew that the Intel Macs weren't going to keep their value very long as soon as Apple Silicon got announced. So I tried to like get the most I could for it, but the uh, it it totally spoils you having a large monitor because this is uh, I think is it thirty two inches? I should know, right? Um, it's six K, so whatever that is, I think it's a yeah. thirty two inch monitor, or um, but the. Uh, having that extra screen real estate allows you to get away with one monitor, which is super useful. Uh, but I would not recommend anybody buy this thing unless they're a video production house and the boss is paying for it. Um, <laughs> the, in fact, the funny thing when I did the trade was the guy traded me, but he made me give him cash for the stand. Cause he's like, I am not, you have to pay for the stand. I, you know, this thousand dollar stand. So yeah. it cost me a thousand dollars plus an iMac pro to get this thing which is dumb, right? I should have just like got a normal screen, but, but the, the, you know, it's awesome though. It's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm looking at the studio. I have friends that have the X, is it the XDR? That's yeah. What they, that's, yeah. And I don't know, that seems a bit, yeah, a you bit don't much you don't for me. Um, but I do, when I was looking at the studio though, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm tall, I'm six, four. So I have to have, my monitors have to sit higher up than what my desk can um, yeah. can do. So I do need on the studio display, I, I do need that more expensive height adjustable stand. Sure. And so before you know it, it's actually $2,200 for the studio display. Yeah. But the XDR, I think, is, is, is too much for me. I was looking at the studio. I've been entertaining two of them. But I, what I told myself was, well, if you get one, just get one. See if it's enough. You can always buy another, but it's a lot harder to get rid of one if you bought one too many. Yeah. the um, And there, there are now some options to the Pro Display. You know, uh, Dell, I believe, has a 6K monitor now. At least they had announced it. I don't think they've released it yet, which is like, I think it's in the $3,000 range. So it's half the price of an, an XDR. Mm. It's going to not have the Apple build for certain, but, you know, that's an option. And I feel like the studio display is great. I mean, it's not for the amount of money it is. It, it really is the same display basically in your 5K iMac. It's not, I don't think, a big jump up from that. But it's at the same time, it's a nice screen. I actually had, I haven't talked about this on the show, but I had a somebody write me to say that they had a, they were local and they had a studio display and they're like, I'm going to sell it. But before I sell it, would you like to buy it? You know? 
kind of thing. And he, the one he had was the um, visa mount version. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, actually I would be, I might be interested in that. So he, but I said, I'm not sure if I really need another one. I've got 32 inches here. And he's like, well, just borrow it for a week and try it out. And if you don't like it, <laughs> you know, just I'll take it back. And it's like, you know, like a drug dealer kind of thing, right? right? You know, right. just here's a taste, you know, but I, uh, so I set it up and within a couple hours, I called him and said, you can come and get it. I, I don't want it. But the, uh, because literally with a 32 inch screen, when you put a pro display to the side, it's a diff, it's a different focal length from your eyes have to change focus. And, and the other thing I got, cause I used to love having multiple screens and I called it my status display and I'd have like OmniFocus and calendar and everything up there all day. And then I realized I don't want that stuff staring back at me all day. I don't want to see it. If I want to have to go to calendars and tasks and email, right. I don't want it. I don't want it to be that easy to see it. And um, it also required me to remove my little Chewbacca from my desk, which was a, was, you know, another cost there, but the, uh, <laughs> So yeah, I, I had one for like a couple hours. I because I texted Stephen a picture of it, and he's like, "Oh, we got to talk about this on the show," but we never got around to it. But I um, I I was not that impressed. I, I think you may want to start with just one, see how it goes. Did you feel like it was like, uh, like a cognitive overload or a visual overload, like just yeah. too much space? Yeah, yeah, I mean, my eyeballs can only look at one screen at a time anyway. And I yeah, I, I wrote about this in the Max Berkey Labs, and a bunch of people wrote me back, and they've got some of them have like three and four screen displays and it looks totally cool like a control center and i get it but just for me and given that i have this monster screen already i'm good you know i'm good like we're recording a podcast right now i've got all the tools i need and then also i've got an ipad here that i can always put into sidecar mode and throw an app on that if i need to so it's it's all good man sidecar mode sidecar mode that is um what an amazing improvement they made on that to be so, so reliable. I use that constantly when I travel. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really quite nice. Well, I mean, they, um, they've really turned the iPad into an accessory device for the Mac. If you want to treat it that way, because mm-hmm. you've got the universal control where you can just leave it an iPad, but still use your mouse and keyboard. They've got sidecar where you can turn it into an external display for your Mac. If you've got an extra iPad in a drawer somewhere, um, why not just connect it to a, a cord so it's always on and stick it on a stand next to your Mac? And I call it my status board iPad because it's got all kinds of status. Like that's where I put the weather and the tasks and stuff. I can just put it all down there on that screen when I want to see it using widgets. And the widgets get even better when we get um, uh, iPad OS 17 release. So yeah, I uh, I love that about it. I'm surprised Apple doesn't try to uh, market it that way more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure they they seem conflicted on what to do about the iPad sidecar. Yeah, yeah. Are are you? Do you have an iPad? Do you are you an iPad guy? I do. I have a 12.9 inch Pro, um, fourth gen. I I honestly don't remember when I bought it. It hasn't been that long. Yeah. Um, and it is running that the latest beta of iOS 17 as we're recording this. Whatever the yeah. latest beta is. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's great. So. I use it for all sorts of different things. I like to read like, you know, articles on it. I don't like to read books on it. I have a, like a Kindle for that. Uh, yeah. It tends to be better for my eyes. And um, it's great for traveling. Again, I use it a lot in sidecar mode as a second display. If I'm on like a, you know, a real kind of low impact travel trip, I just have the iPad in the bag with my, with my MacBook Pro. And 
trying to think what else, you know, I read documents on it, but it's not like a, it's not a device I use like hours a day, but uh, I feel like it's, it's just so nice to, to have one available. Yeah. And you are a former Apple watch owner or user. <laughs> yeah, I am. I had, uh, an older generation Apple watch. I've had a couple Apple watches. And then once the the one I had, I think it was one of the cellular ones, I kind of got annoyed with like the, just that I had this thing on my arm that was tapping at me and doing this and that, and I was getting distracted. So one year for Christmas, I asked for a an analog watch and my wife got me a, a Hamilton mechanical watch. Um, and it, doesn't, you know, it's self-winding and uh, it's like a nice little watch. And so I decided to try that out, put the Apple Watch aside. And I just really, I just really enjoyed like just the simplicity of a non-Apple Watch wrist. Yeah. These are really pretty watches. I'm looking at their website. Right yeah. Now. yeah. And, you know, it's, I think, I think like going like to classic watches is a bit cliche for someone in their 40s. but. um but it's actually been really nice. You know, I have, I have a running watch that I use to run with, which is not an Apple watch. Um, and then I have this Hamilton, which is just like a everyday mechanical watch. It's, it's just nice to have that. I always have my phone in my pocket. So it just felt like weird to have my, uh, a watch too. Um, but I will say that the, the, the Apple watch ultra, that is one tempting little piece of gear. Yeah. Um, it's, I've seen it in person. I've heard people, I know people that have them and it's really, really tempting to have as like an extra like piece of gear. Um, I think I would get one if the other two people in my family, my wife and my daughter would want Apple watches as well. So we were at a indoor water park here um, near Austin. It's called Kalahari. I think they're on different places in the country. And I was mentioning to my wife, and I said, you know, it'd be great if we, at this point, if we all had Apple watches, so we could keep track of each other while we were doing different things in the water park. Cause I was like a kid in Candyland, like going up and down these slides and yeah. my daughter wanted to be in the wave pool. So I think for like keeping us connected as a family, especially as um, our daughter's gotten older, an Apple watch for everybody seems like kind of a cool thing to have. You know, we all have like our um, location tracking turned on on our phones. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my kid doesn't always have her phone with her. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, I might not have my phone right in front of me. My wife has the best, like, device usage habits of anybody. So she doesn't always have her phone in her face. So I could see an Apple Watch being helpful then. But just for me on my own, it just felt like something that was distracting for me. Yeah. And, you know, those notifications, there's actually a way you can turn them off. You know, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to yeah, turn but it it's, into a it's notification. It's still like a yet. screen. It was still like a screen on my wrist. And this was like three or four years ago. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. So I, I got get rid it. of it. I get yeah. it. I get it. I, the, the thing about the Apple Watch that drives me nuts is the faces. I just feel like, like I'm looking at this Hamilton page. I'm like, there's three or four faces here that would be perfect on an Apple Watch. Right. And they, I don't know why they just can't do this, but either way. Yeah, I, I get it. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepassword.com slash MPU and get 20% off. In the modern world, you need a thorough security system to protect yourself on the internet. 
It's not enough just to write down a few passwords on sticky notes these days. And to solve that problem, I recommend 1Password. The trouble with so many security tools is it feels like you're trying to choose between convenience and security because it can be really inconvenient to have good security. Well, 1Password allows you to have your cake and eat it too. It has convenience plus security. With 1Password, you and your family can protect and securely share passwords, financial accounts, credit cards, and much more. From today's passwords to tomorrow's passkeys and everything in between, 1Password has got you covered. 1Password gives you an entirely separate vault of secure data on your iPhone, iPad, and Mac, and even your Apple Watch. And the beauty of it is that if someone gets your device, they have to go through that separate vault to get that information. So you can put information in there like passwords, credit cards, medical records, even the front door code, and you can put them in there and people can't get them without that separate password. At the same time, 1Password makes it really easy for you to securely share that information with other people. That's why the Sparks family is on a 1Password family plan. We're constantly sharing data securely. And 1Password goes beyond giving you a place to store and share your passwords. It also keeps an eye on things for you. Their watchtower service gives you an at-a-glance information that you need to stay safe and take action when you need to. Watchtower will alert you to weak, compromised, and duplicated passwords. And that's just the beginning. There's so much more to it. You should check out a family plan for your family with 1Password. To do so, go to onepasswordcom MPU. Once again, onepasswordcom MPU. That will get you 20% off, and you can start protecting yourself and your family today. Ryan, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that you are actively involved with teaching and and keeping up with web development. And I feel like for a lot of us, web development was kind of easy to understand when it was HTML and CSS. And for a long time, those of us that were kind of paying attention had a general idea of what's going on. And at this point, most of the rest of us have gone to services like Squarespace or simple you know tools to do our own web development. I have no idea what's going on in the web development world in 2023. Can you just bring us up to date? Oh, gosh, sure. That's a big task. Um, I'll do my best. And so I think it's broken out into a few different spaces. You talked about Squarespace. That's like these turnkey hosted like site builders, right? There's Squarespace, Wix, like there's all sorts of, you know, stuff like that. And those are great because they give uh, end users direct access to creating their site without having to go through another, uh, another party, right? You don't have to yeah. hire someone to, do, to design something or to code something. And I think they have real purpose. They've opened up the ability to have a website, um, a nice you know, functioning website to a lot more people. And then next in line, kind of one step, like next below that or however you want to you know, structure it, is like content management systems. So think of WordPress or uh, the one that I work uh, with and teach, uh, Craft CMS. And there's also like Drupal and there's, there's other things. Some of these have now kind of morphed into being like their own little frameworks as well. So they can be extended with plugins. Um, they can um, be extended with, with, with other like functionality that, you know, that people can use in theirs to make it more robust and easier to work with. A lot of those CMSs can be used by end users 
really simply through the inner the user interface, but they probably need someone to set them up and configure them for you. Um, WordPress, I think, being on the easiest side of things, there's a host called um, WP Engine. It's based yeah. out of here in Austin, and they really make it easy to kind of spin up and host a WordPress site. But isn't WP Engine that's related to WordPress, right? That's kind of like their home. No, it's it's a whole separate company. Okay. Yeah, I think WordPress might have their own, like they have their own hosted version too, but WP Engine is kind of like, you know, we're going to help you safely and securely host WordPress sites. And that's yeah. like their whole their whole thing. And that's a real fear for people. I, I did WordPress originally with Max Sparky and, and we were having like plugins get compromised and like right. everything felt like Wild West, um, which is frankly what drove me off WordPress to begin with because I didn't want to have to manage all that stuff. So but that my understanding is that's got a lot easier now. Yeah, it's gotten easier. Um, like stuff like WP Engine, they they only allow like certain plugins, or maybe they have like a blacklist of plugins that they won't allow. Um, but they they're more careful about what they allow onto their infrastructure. So there's also sites like uh, or content management systems like Craft CMS that have um, like that are typically configured and set up by a web developer and then you can apply whatever design you want there's no themes right so it's yeah it'll it'll use any design that you can think of in code and that's more of like your traditional html css um and then you can integrate that with craft and have a great site that you can then manage via like a real nice back-end uh, user interface and there's others like there's statimic is another one that uh, uh is out there um, but there's lots of those types of content management systems. Um, so if you go further along, then there's the, like the custom coding. So this is like writing an application from scratch. You're not building on top of a content management system. And those are now typically all done within like a framework. And that can be done either in JavaScript, which of course is like where all of web development is focused right now, um, especially in uh, in enterprise um, and, you know, in all like startups and stuff is typically all JavaScript. And then there's uh, PHP. The biggest framework there is Laravel and that's L-A-R-A-V-E-L. And um, they've created like a, a really robust set of tools that m- give you a really nice um, platform to develop on. And that, that's PHP. Um, of course, there's Ruby on Rails, which has been around, you know, for a long time. And there's um, like Python web frameworks as well. There's, there's every one of those languages has like their own ecosystem. JavaScript being right now one of the biggest and the most popular. And I think PHP probably coming in second. Um, but that's really where you're going to ask somebody to, um, as an example, I'm working on a project right now where we are creating a internal application for a company to manage like um, their you know, inventory and, and, uh, and their sales and stuff like that for, for their company. Yeah. And so we're creating that all from scratch because it's very specific to their needs. And that's all done in, you know, with a, in this case, it's Laravel with a, uh, a language and a framework in web development. A framework really just gives you, it gives you kind of like the boilerplate stuff that you need for free. It just already has it there for you. So you don't have to write every bit of, um, code and functionality from scratch. Um, it just gives you a lot of stuff. Most people are writing, unless you're doing lower level stuff, most people are writing um, 
on the web uh, from a framework. So that's kind of like the, the most custom you know, version. And that's typically you'll have a team of web developers building, you know, maybe they're building, um, I don't know, some, you know, startup application, you know, they're, they're building something for the web and they have a startup. They're going to build that on, you know, like job in JavaScript with a framework. And, uh, and that's, you know, but that's where we're all like the, the heavier lifting happens is on that framework side of things. We've, we've got a lot of listeners who like run small businesses or do have some presence on the web. And w- I think one of the questions I would have is where are the transition points? You know, where are you somebody who goes from a build your own service to, uh, you know, hire a developer to set up a system to, you know, build an entirely custom presence on the web? I mean, where in your experience are those transition points where people need to start thinking about the next level up or down? I typically encounter like clients or potential clients who have reached the like the maximum they can do with the tool they have. And, you know, whether, you know, I've even been in situations where that tool was FileMaker. We wanted to kind of bring out something old school. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> right? Because FileMaker was amazing because it, it empowered especially small businesses to create like a database and forms and, and yeah. like workflows. I guarantee you there are some people listening to this right now that are doing amazing things with FileMaker. Yeah, absolutely. To this day, yeah. Absolutely. And that's the experience that I had where that became a bottleneck for the company and it needed to all transition into a um, custom application because they realized that, you know, in order for our business to go where we want it to go, we need to move away from this technology. And then the next step is now to build something custom. Yeah. In the, in, in the case of like, you know, I have a WordPress site, let's say, and I'm selling, you know, widgets on my WordPress site. And I realized that, you know, working in my WordPress site is just really tedious. I feel like I'm having to like, you know, step over dead bodies to get to do what I want to do because there's just so much cruft there. Yeah. And then maybe they realize that, oh, like, you know, we're doing, you know, this amount of money in, in business now. Like, let's reinvest in our own platform that's going to get us, you know, uh, you know, where we want to be or set us up, you know, for the next 10 years or something like that. And so that's a natural place. Uh, same thing with like Squarespace. Let's say Squarespace to like, you know, craft CMS. They have like this turnkey thing. They want to have something where they have more control over how they put in data, how things look on the front end. That's a, a really common um, transition point as well. So typically people run into walls and they realize like, oh, like to get like, you know, through this wall, I have to kind of, you know, take a sidestep to a new platform yeah. and then I can move forward. I, I also think that the, um, the transition isn't as hard as it used to be. Like, I feel like all of these tools kind of talk to each other at this point. Yeah. And that really makes it easy for people to, to try this stuff out, you know? And, yeah, there's. There's a couple of things that have made it really easy. I think WordPress has for sure made people doing commerce online a lot easier. For developers, Stripe has made it a lot easier for developers to do custom e-commerce and yeah. payments online. And then for um, hooking things together, stuff like uh, Zapier, you know, those types of tools that can help, uh, you know, be like the, the connective bits between systems have made it a lot easier to connect things. And of course you can go, you know, more um, custom and like write your own 
like API connections and, and do all of that. But like there's an intermediary step that didn't used to be there. It is interesting. I never had thought about that as Zapier as a web development tool. I always thought of it as something like nerds like me would bring in later to, to add some bits, but you could architect it into a website. Sure. Yeah. If you needed to, to sync, like I've done it where I've, I had to get um, data from Stripe into, let's say some like email, you know, marketing tool. And then, you know, Zapier was like the, the thing I used. So it's, yeah, there's and a lot of those tools are building in like their own integrations now where they're like, oh, we work directly with Stripe. Okay. So everybody's talking about artificial intelligence now and, <laughs> you know, its ability to come in and do things and, you know, to success and failure. Uh, is artificial intelligence a thing in the world of web development? Yeah, there are AI tools. Um, you know, we have uh, like chat GPT. That's like, you can ask it. You know, I want to, you can say, you know, write code that, um, you know, takes CSV data of addresses and organizes it by, you know, zip codes or something like that. And, yeah. and, uh, and write it in Python. And then ChatGPT will, will give you like code in Python um, that should do that. I'm not, you know, here's the thing though, is that, you know, it's only as good as it's, as it's input. So you, you know, it's not a, it's not a short thing. You have to like verify that the code works and you have to know enough to know whether that's like good code or the right code. Yeah. There's a tool called VS code, visual studio code by Microsoft. And I love talking about Microsoft because Microsoft used to be like the butt of the joke in web development. And, um, and they are actually leading the way in a lot of web development tools now. Like they own GitHub, uh, VS code. Like they really are, on the, the, um, really putting out some, and, and they own now some amazing tools. I, I think that could be said about Microsoft generally, right? Yeah. They were the butt of the jokes in a lot of software, but then suddenly they said, we are going to be, we're going to take that soft part of the name seriously and become a software company. And right. they have really turned things around in a lot of departments. Yeah. yeah. So with VS code, visual studio code, um, it's probably the most popular, uh, code editor or IDE, and it has uh, support for a a tool called GitHub Copilot. And GitHub Copilot is essentially a AI uh, tool that will be like a you know a pair coder with you, someone that sits next to you and gives you suggestions on you know solving your problems with code. And it's all integrated in VS Code. So what you have to do is. I can write like a code comment. So let's say it's like slash slash iterate over a, an array and, you know, um, I don't know, organize, you know, the, you know, the items by such and such um, key or such and such value. And it'll give you like, it'll just go bloop, bloop, bloop. And just like spit out like a block of code yeah. that all not only is um, likely to be pretty close, but also is in with, within the context of the project that you're in, because it knows like all of the code in the pro in your project already. Um, and that's pretty typical for a, like a code editor kind of has like uh, context awareness of your, you know, different variables that you're using and the library that you're using. So it knows like what's available, but the code is typically like pretty, pretty close, super interesting. But again, with the caveat that it's not, you know, likely going to be exactly what you need 
for really simple stuff, it probably will be, but it might not be exactly what you need, but it might also be an interesting look into how the computer would solve the problem that you're trying to solve. I don't think it's going to take anybody's jobs away um, because you still have to be a domain expert and understand like what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. The computer doesn't know that. The way that GitHub does it is they, they use all of the, the Git repositories, all of the code in those repositories, they use that to feed the model. Um, and I think it's public repositories. <clears throat> they use that to feed the model. And so they understand the patterns and um, I'm not an AI expert. So it's like, this is definitely like kindergarten level understanding. Um, and then that's how they, you know, generate these suggestions. They also learns from things that you've done before. So you can, uh, it'll, you know, spit out stuff that's already in your code elsewhere. Um, that way you're like, oh yeah, I actually did this over here already. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's basically the main like ways that I would interface with AI right now in, in web development. Um, there's a lot more to it. Like I don't work in the AI space in terms of like developing, um, you know, large language models or anything like that. That's not my, that's not my space. Yeah, the Copilot is uh, uh, Microsoft's kind of like term of art for all their AI integration, and they're putting it everywhere. I mean, they've yeah. really kind of gone all in with it. Someone was asking me about it. I said, it's like Clippy, but less personality and it's smarter, you know? <laughs> right. And um, I, and I think a lot of people don't even know what Clippy is that are listening. But, uh, you know, Microsoft, this isn't the first time Microsoft has tried to give you a little helper. And mm-hmm. uh, I am super curious to see how this develops and if it becomes something that that all apps try to embrace. Like, I, I recently did a, an extended test with the Spark Mail app. Because one of the reasons why I wanted to test it is they've got integrated artificial intelligence. And I found almost no use for it in an email application. And when I did try to have it like write a quick reply for me, it wasn't up to snuff. And I don't think that's yeah. anything about Spark. It's just kind of the current state of, of, of AI. And also the way I write is unique to me. And uh, the AI hasn't figured me out yet. But the um, but it, it is a, an interesting kind of development and it isn't it's i i think it's interesting as well how it's like it's it's finding its way everywhere web development software development email you know spreadsheets no matter what you do on a computer people are working on trying to make ai tools to help you yeah i've seen it in in grammarly now has like an ai thing um yeah what was i oh buffer that that's like that social sharing tool i use that to publish out to different places when i like create a new course um, like they'll like, you know, have a little tool where it'll let you'll, you can let it like write your, your tweets and your toots and your whatever other things. Um, but again, like I don't use it because like, I know what I want to say and how I want to say it. And it's just, um, I like to have that control. I am super curious to see how this shakes out because I, I, yeah. I I'm not going to be the old guy putting my head in the sand here. I think that <laughs> AI is here to stay and I think it can become useful to us. And I also am not kidding myself. I think some people will be displaced by AI um, in their jobs. But, you know, we've just got to keep an eye on it. And I think as people that are interested in this stuff, we've got to figure out how to use it to make us better at what we do and not look at it as much of a threat as, and more of as a tool. And right. uh, that's, but it's it's going to evolve a lot in the next couple of years and, and uh, we should all keep our eyes on it. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. 
your shortcut to efficient and consistent communications. Get 20% off. Just go to textexpander.com slash MPU. When you work in a small team, every moment counts. You don't want to be wasting your time finding video conferencing details to send to a new client, and you don't want to track down the same FAQs from the company website. These are the kinds of things you want at your fingertips so you can get your work done faster, and that's why you need Text Expander. With Text Expander, you can access what you type the most with just a few keystrokes, allowing you to work faster and eliminate repetition, and letting you focus on what matters most to you. Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations streamline your team's work. All you have to do is type a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest for you. You just build and collect your most commonly used phrases, messages, URLs, and more right within Text Expander. Then you create your chosen abbreviation and they'll be with you wherever you type. You can even customize the snippets by having them automatically add in dates, fill in the blank fields, timestamps, and more. This will make sure that you still keep personality in the communications you send. And Text Expander is available on any device you use across any app you use on Mac, Windows, Chrome, and iOS. I use Text Expander every day. I have to make an admission. Text Expander makes a cute little bloop sound every time it expands text. Now, my nerdy friends will tell you that you should turn that off so you don't have that noise bothering you, but I love that sound. Every time I hear it, I know I'm saving time, and that's what Text Expander does. It makes me more productive. Moreover, if you want to automate, this is the best place to start automating. We all write text. Automated text should make you happy. If repetitive typing is getting you down, you need Text Expander. Check out Text Expander today at textexpander.com slash MPU, and you can get 20% off your first year. That's textexpander.com slash MPU to say goodbye to repetitive typing. And our thanks to Text Expander for their support of the Mac Power users. So Ryan, you and I do kind of the same thing. We like to teach people how to get better at stuff, uh, quite often with video materials. And I thought it'd be fun to kind of talk through your workflow and, and what you're using to pull off all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's like three different like phases of my work is there's the planning, um, yeah. which it's not always linear, like from planning to producing and, and publishing some, like I have things in, you know, that I, I wrote like a, you know, a quarter of something and just like, let it sit. And then I'd come back like a year later and you're like, Oh, like I want to work on that now. And yeah, you know, and, and that's all really done like in obsidian is like the main place where I write, like if I'm doing a video course, I write out everything um, in the, in obsidian. So I have like a folder that I create in obsidian for the course. And then inside of the folder are um, one or more documents that uh, support, you know, that course. I typically start with like a scratch document. Yeah. And that's just me like bullet listing ideas, like free flow, like just trying to get information out. I might include uh, links to other resources. Uh, one of the things I like to do is when I'm going to teach something is go look and see how other people, um, if other people have taught it, how did they teach it? And then where can I make it better? So I, I found that sometimes you'll see patterns where everybody's teaching the same thing the same way. And say, okay, like, you know, what are the holes? Like, what's maybe a way that I can make it easier to learn? And so I'll put in like ref references there. Now, how did you stumble into Obsidian? Oh, that's a good question. I don't remember, but it was, it was back when you still had to pay for 
the mobile app. Do you remember that when there was like, yeah. they had like a, yeah. So I don't remember where I heard about it, but I, I was using Ulysses before that, which I, I, I loved and, and still love, but um, I was finding myself getting bothered by having to like, I couldn't just copy and paste the, the markdown out of the, out of the document. Yeah. Um, so I was looking for something that was like pure markdown. Yeah. I, the thing about Obsidian is the folder full of markdown, you know, files that it's just, that is irresistible. I guess kind of go back to where we started the show today. There's just something so timeless about just text files or markdown files that, you know, yeah. you've got the data forever and, and you control it. And that to me really made sense. Cause I, I first heard about this when Rome research kind of surged when Rome, I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. With that yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I was a subscriber for a couple of months to try it out. Yeah, and I thought that was the 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 way the linking works to me is a very appealing model. It gives you tools and it allows you to kind of cut some new grooves in your brain, and I love that. Uh, but the whole thing with Rome was it's all on their website and it's all mm-hmm. on their data and it's not you know encrypted, and so I I just felt like yes and no because I also wanted to use it in the law practice at the time and I couldn't because you know their model and then Obsidian showed up, so I I got into Obsidian early because. It was like Rome, but with a local data model, which to me was like the thing I needed. Um, have you gone like down the rabbit hole with extensions and plugins and all the other things people are doing in Obsidian, or do you have a pretty vanilla install? Um, I've done some of that. So for a long time, I did all of my like daily planning in using the uh, daily notes plugin. Yeah. yeah. Um, cause I'm also like, I have like this back and forth relationship with where I do my daily planning. Um, yes. I have like a stack of the time block planners from Cal Newport on my bookshelf. Um, I have this other one I've been using that I found at a Japanese bookstore near my house that I really like. And I've, and I've even created my own and printed it out like in, on legal paper, like, uh, a landscape, you know, so you had like this big like wide piece of paper to plan with every day. Yeah. And then also I've used a, a agenda is another one I've used. Yeah. It's a good app. Yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of bounced around, but yeah, daily notes. I, I call it the obsidian journey, right? Cause you get it <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, this can do everything. And then so yeah. you move everything into it and then eventually you start to back off a little bit and you're like, right. oh, this is really good at these things. But those other things I was forcing into it probably don't belong there. But yeah, it, it, you do have to like you have to you have to overshoot and, and course correct. I think everybody who uses this app goes through that. Yeah, and I I but my main usage is really the core functionality, um, yeah. with just you know linking things together, and just having like a reliable editor that I can write in, um, that I can you know search through, because um, I write. Like I just have so much stuff that I start and then stop and it's just nice to be able to, to easily find it. I wouldn't call myself like an obsidian power user, but it's, it's like a core part of, of like me producing content. Yeah. Uh, do you use the mobile apps much? The iPhone and the iPad apps for obsidian? I don't for a while. I didn't really think that they were, they were that good. They've gotten better. I, I just haven't had like, for me, it's a, it's a sit down like at my desk or at my laptop application because i don't i don't write on my ipad that much because it's i mean you know i have a 14 inch macbook pro so my ipad is almost the same size yeah. so 
um, yeah, I don't use it, use it that much, but, um, I've heard, um, that it's, it's better than it used to be. I mean, I have them on both my devices. I just don't use it that much. It's better, but it's still not kind of that native experience. So I, yeah. I do think if you're someone who wants to do most of your work on an iPad, you may want to look at other options, but, but if you mainly work on a Mac, I, I really love Obsidian. I'm, I'm a big fan, but the, um, what, what else is, goes into your planning phase of getting this stuff together? Uh, so I use, um, Trello. I have a couple different boards, uh, one for like content that I publish on the site. And I have another board that I use to collaborate with, um, Andrew Welch, who co-hosts a live stream that we do on the first and third Thursday of every month. It's called craft quest on call. Um, we just basically, you know, go live and answer people's questions, present, you know, a topic that's interesting to us. And so we have a different Trello board, but that yeah. just helps me plan ahead. Um, using like the calendar plugin, whatever they call it. I forget what their name for plugins are. Um, so I can kind of like plan out content <clears throat> throughout whatever the coming weeks. I feel like that part of it, you could probably do with the Kanban plugin in Obsidian. Yeah, I know. But, <laughs> but, um, but when you talk about collaborating with Andrew, that has to happen with something right. like Trello. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It makes it easier because we can drop, you know, similar to like recording a podcast, right? You can drop links in. Yeah. And it's a shared card. So it, it works well. Um, and if I ever bring on like other collaborators or authors, it's just nice to have a place that everybody can, um, can access. Yeah. Trello still is just a banger. It's just so good. And like every time I get the idea of having a shared uh, Kanban, I look at the options of Trello and I always conclude Trello is probably the one. Yeah. They just keep it so simple. And I don't know. It's, I don't think I pay for it, right? I feel like they, it's pretty robust and free. Yeah. I mean, they have a paid tier, but for small jobs, you're fine. You don't need it. You know, the other part of planning is because I'm teaching coding to some extent is that is the, like, you know, using like a code editor, you know, to, to write out the code. And then I typically, all that code is also in the Obsidian document. So inline. So think of it, think about if a, Core, like a video in a course as a, you know, an article or a short chapter in a book. I write it all out in the Obsidian document with the code snippets in line. And that's like my, my document that I use when I'm recording. Yeah. So I don't read word for word from the document, but um, it's my guide. I found through recording a lot over the last uh, 15 years is Anytime I need to say something in a very specific way or describe something or define something, um, I have to have it written down to make sure that I say it exactly the way I meant to say it when I wrote it. Um, I'm not good enough to try to recall that and just, just you know, say it from memory. So I always have a good um, you know, guide of this document. And this document then with some editing can be turned into an article that I can publish on the site that supports the video. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's, you know, the video is like a premium video. You have to have a subscription. The article is a great way to get people the basic information and, you know, uh, encourage them to, you know, check out the, the premium video as well. Makes sense. Um, I, I also find that if you script it, it just comes off really wooden, at least for me. I'm not yeah. a good enough actor. So <laughs> having an extensive outline to me results in a much better product than if I read from a script. It also gives you a 
excellent uh, resource for when you're searching for something on Obsidian a year later. Yeah. And you can say, oh, I actually wrote about this already, but I didn't go deep enough on this one topic. And I, so like I have all of my writing like in this one, uh, I just use a single database. So yeah. in this one database and you can just stumble upon things as you're finding other, as you're looking for something else or you're writing something. And yeah, so it's, it's nice to have it all written out rather than just like kind of bullets that you know what they mean in like that week. But yeah. a year later, you probably don't understand what you were talking about. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It's just kind of like serendipitous discovery. I love that. Yeah. But, um, so when you decide to start recording, what are your tools? Okay, so ScreenFlow, which I think is probably the most popular one um, that people yeah, but, use. But we, we shouldn't pass over that, though, because I get that email like once a week from people saying, what do you use to record? And I tell people the first app you want is ScreenFlow. You yeah. can get it in the app store. I think it's like a hundred bucks and it has everything you need. Like you and I were doing this back in the days where it was really difficult to get a screen recording. And then like the idea of doing editing and titling and, you know, additional work in the app that recorded the screen was like, it was beyond even consideration because the, the apps that would record your screen were so bad, but ScreenFlow has really put together a package where you can do the whole, you can do the whole video start to end in that if you learn it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's fortunate to have a tool like ScreenFlow because it's also a one stop tool. Like you can use it for everything. Um, you can publish, you know, from it to, I think you can publish to YouTube, Vimeo. I, I yeah. mean, pretty much and all the major providers. And it's amazing. Now the the one like twist with my workflow is that I only use ScreenFlow for capturing. Okay. Um, I don't use it for editing. And so I record in ScreenFlow. When I'm done recording, I then save um, the ScreenFlow document to a, uh, <laughs> this is kind of interesting. So to a, uh, a, a disk image that I've mounted, um, typically like a sparse disk image. Sure. And then um, inside of there, I have like a folder structure that I've created. Um, I create the, the disk image using drop DMG, uh, which is a great little app. I used to use another app and now I can't remember the name of it, but it, it didn't make the, the transition. One of the Mac OS transitions, it didn't make it. The folder structure that I have for every single project, I, I create using an app called post haste. And it's just this like lightweight app that allows you to create these like templates for directories for projects. I think it's used a lot in video production and photography production, you know, where every like video house has its own like house set up for, you know, folders and stuff. So I save those ScreenFlow documents into the ScreenFlow document directory. Post haste comes up like once in a blue moon on the show. And every time we mention it, I get emails from people like, this is amazing. And yeah. so like, if you're listening, you don't have to be a video production house. If you just want to say, every time you get a new client, you set up the same folder structure. Right. And you want to automate that post haste, just buy it. Don't think yeah. twice. It does yeah. the job. It's really easy to use. Great app. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then uh, once I'm done recording all the ScreenFlow documents. So every, every like video, let's say I'm creating a course. It has 12 videos in it. Yeah. Every video is its own ScreenFlow document. Yeah. Right. So it's own dot ScreenFlow file. Um, 
when I'm done recording all of them, I use the batch export and I export all of those as, I don't recall the exact settings. It's the- Probably lossless. Like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then out into another directory, which is like a footage directory in, in that, uh, you know, mounted disk image inside of that folder structure I created with post haste. There's one called footage that gets all saved into there. And at that point, I'm ready to like edit. So I've been doing my editing in Final Cut since like Final Cut 7. Like back, like I think the first time I got it, I had, I bought like, you know, the, the CDs back or the DVDs. When, back when you had to mortgage your house to get it. Yeah. <laughs> from the Apple store. Yeah. I think it was like, I don't know, was it $700? I don't remember how much I paid for it. $400? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was more because I think it's like 300 now or 200. It used to be like a couple grand. I remember. Yeah. yeah. So I just have like this habit, like I could do everything in ScreenFlow, but I'm just so comfortable in Final Cut that yeah. it just makes sense. And I can organize um, in a Final Cut project, I can organize all my videos like together for the course. So I can, I always see like the sequencing and, you know, and I always know like exactly where all the videos are and I can keep the entire thing together in a single Final Cut project. I don't store the, the, like in Final Cut, you have the option to store the media in the, inside the Final Cut project. I don't do that. It's, it's just like symlinked from, you know, those other directories. Um, so that way the Final Cut project is, is super small and lightweight. Well, I, I would I would say that you can probably do better edits with Final Cut than ScreenFlow. I mean, they have more tools, and depending on you know how far you, down the rabbit hole you go through in video processing, Final Cut is a more powerful tool. But for people getting started, I would say just do it in ScreenFlow. You're good enough. In fact, a lot of yeah. the stuff I do never touches Final Cut. Some of it does if it needs it, if it's got live video or whatever. But for basic screencasting, ScreenFlow is enough. But if you do want to go next level, Ryan is onto it. I think Final Cut is the next stop. Yeah, it's it's great. From Final Cut, right out of Final Cut, I I uh, export and upload to Vimeo. So Vimeo is the video host that I use. Yeah. And the nice thing about it is that this Vimeo plugin that you can get for Final Cut, you don't have to worry about the like the export settings. It's all preset for you to be optimized for Vimeo. And if there's one thing about me is like, if somebody is saving me like that work and the, the thought that I need to put into that and they have it done, I'm like, I'm in, I'll just, I'll just do that. So right out of fi- Final Cut to Vimeo, I never write an actual video file like locally. Yeah. And so, and just right up to Vimeo because Vimeo will hold, you know, I have a pro account. So they hold like your original files and, and then all of the files that they transcode for you to different formats. Yeah. And then from there, like I, uh, to deliver, you know, I use, you know, to publish the course, it's Vimeo, of course, um, craft CMS for, for craft quest, the CMS I use is craft CMS. I basically like, I built the site on the thing that I teach and, um, you know, I just have like a, create like a new entry in the system for a, like a course, you know, plug in all the information about it, tag it, you know, mark whether it's for like a premium user or, you know, it's for um, free accounts or if it's for people that, you know, are just visiting as guests. And then I can just uh, drop in all the different videos, give them each like descriptions and, um, and then publish the course. So it's, uh, that's, I say that's all there is to it. It's quite a few steps, but it's something that I've kind of honed over um, several years. And it's for a while I had a, someone helping me edit and um, it actually worked really well because he was able to export out of Final Cut right into Vimeo. 
And then that was my notification when Vimeo got a new video that there was something for me then to like to work on. So the, the, the workflow has been pretty nice. Well, it's a lot easier than it used to be, isn't it? <laughs> it is a lot easier than it used to be. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. Go to indeed.com slash MPU and join more than 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. What's a game where nobody wins? It's the waiting game. When it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, you can use their powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches your job description the moment they sponsor a job. According to Indeed data, U.S. Indeed's hiring platform really is great. I mean, can you imagine that? You need a new person you need to find the right hire. You put it in and Indeed already has the person for you. You just get a hold of them and hire them. It's awesome. Candidates you invite to apply are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search, according to US Indeed data. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. That makes it an unbelievably powerful hiring platform, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com MPU. This offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com MPU. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com MPU to support the show by saying you heard about it on the Mac Power Users. Terms and conditions apply, but do you need to hire? You need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the Mac Power Users and all of Relay FM. Ryan, when we were catching up last, you were telling me you were starting to get into HomeKit. How's that going? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so I think earlier in the episode, I mentioned that we were gone over the summer for a month away from home. Yeah. And uh, HomeKit kind of helped me keep an eye on everything going on in my house. Yeah. Um, both from like cameras and lights and, you know, uh, thermostat for the HVAC. So it kind of started like, I felt like I just, you know, took one step and then kind of fell into it. You mentioned Eddie Smith earlier. He's been a... Um, a bad influence in me in terms of uh, like upping my home kit game. Yeah. But, I bet. <laughs> so it really, honestly, it started out with once I got the first, my first home pod, because um, in order to get home kit to work remotely, you have to have like the bridge, which is typically a home pod or an Apple TV. You have to have like that device that connects your home kit system to the outside world. Yeah. So I got like a big home pod, one of the original ones. And I was like, oh, like I can, you know, I can, I can tell like, you know, Siri to like turn the light off and on. Um, and I got like a little, you know, plug, like an outlet. Um, it was actually a little one that plugs into the wall that you can plug a lamp into. Yeah. And that's what it's, that's what it started with one lamp, one thing and one home pod. Yeah. And now I think I have 
six home pods, so one that original one, and then five minis kind of throughout the house and then out in the backyard in my office. Um, and it's really how we all here at my house interact with Siri. Um, you know, like, you know, hey, Siri, what's, you know, what's the weather today? Um, oops, all my devices are, oh, are lighting up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't do that when recording. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, in a season, unlike right now in summer where the weather changes day to day, you know, it's, we can sit down for breakfast and just ask for the weather or to play a song if we have something that, that comes up. So that was the first like interaction, you know, how I got into HomeKit. All right, I want to interrupt there. So since you've got yeah. all these HomePods, have you explored the intercom feature? I have. And it's usually just as me just being like a dad and being silly. You know, that, we live. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it went down in my house. Like, yeah, they're like, what are you doing? Why are you, t- why is your voice in my room? You know, that was, it was almost outrage when I used it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we live kind of like in, the central Austin area. So like we live like in a post-war neighborhood. There's no like huge houses here. We live in a, you know, like a, you know, like a 1962 ranch, you know, from, you know, that's, it's not huge. There's only three of us. And honestly, like I can yell across the house and get everybody's attention. So we don't, but uh, we do play music throughout the house. Um, We do have like music wars sometimes, you know, where, yeah. Like we'll talk about something at dinner and I'll say, you know, I'll, I'll ask um, that person to, to play, you know, a song. And then, you know, my daughter, like, you know, Hey, blank stop. And then, you know, and then she'll play something else. We'll go have like a music wars. Yeah. We, my wife and I were sick last week and yesterday her and I, she worked from home uh, yesterday. So as soon as she showed up, I had all the home pods play Bing Crosby's back in the saddle again. And <laughs> I thought it was really funny and clever. And she just looked at me like she wanted to murder me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I do that for, for Christmas, you know, for holidays and stuff. It's sure, just nice to sure. have music playing the same music playing all through the house. Um, my daughter has one in her room so she can control and, and just, you know, you know, ask it to play, you know, probably Taylor Swift or something. And, uh, and, and yeah, so it's great now. So here's the thing is that, uh, it's not just enough to ask for the weather. So I was then we could ask it to turn lights on and off. And then I was like, okay, like now I get like why there's this like home app on my phone that I kind of didn't really use that much. Yeah. And then I got the morose or morass, yeah. um, the outdoor smart plug for Christmas lights. Sure. So it needs to be a high amperage uh, home kit enabled plug. <laughs> right. And then I got one for the backyard. We have like, just like string lights kind of in the backyard. Like, I guess one does these days. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I can just program those to come on, you know, at, you know, 20 minutes after sundown and then go off at, you know, at bedtime at like, you know, whatever, 11 PM. So we have like our backyards lit up. And, and so I just automated that. So that, that wasn't through Siri. And then um, earlier this year, I had a, like a workshop shed thing in my backyard converted to an office. And that's the first time I actually installed like in the wall uh, switches that I could use. And I think I got, um, I think they're Mor- Morose or Akara. Actually, I actually can't remember. Um, yeah. But then I could program those, the Logitech cameras that I had, the wired ones, those are HomeKit compatible. So I got those up. 
And then we were planning for this long summer trip. We're going to you know, we're gonna be gone for a month. No one would be here. And I was like, well, I need to keep an eye on things, but also I need to make sure everything is automated. So, you know, the, the, the front room light comes on and goes off, you know, like, I don't want to give away too much OPSEC here, but you know, yeah. like, so you just want the house to look lived in while you're gone. Yeah. That's like Kevin McAllister, right? You know, <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of like that. Um, and I just started adding things and I have a whole bunch of Acara cameras. I have the hub. I have some switches that I put in for lights. It can be a little bit of a challenge in an older house with older wiring. Cause not, you don't always have that. Um, is it the neutral wire that, that runs back that some yeah. of the switches require? Yeah. And then let's see, what else did well, I do? Well, let I mean, me I interrupt control- there. Cause you, yeah. you mentioned Akara, and I feel like that is a definite gateway for people. And, oh, and yeah. overall, what I love about your setup is that you haven't gone completely crazy. Cause like, <laughs> I have installed, like, I've got a home assistant device. I've got, like, I've gone, like, next level with this. Yeah. And I think that is a very much an edge case. I think for most people, just using HomeKit, getting some switches and slowly growing it over time, that's really the the healthy way to do this. But Akara, to me, is such a game changer for that model. Like, if you just want to use HomeKit, Akara, you need to get a hub from them because they're, I think they're Zigbee. They're, they're on a um, separate frequency, which right. makes it a lot more stable. Like uh, the Bluetooth and Wi-Fi things are great because they're easy to use, but then half the time they don't work. But when you get something that has its own hub and it, it's it got its own bandwidth, then suddenly it's really stable and really efficient. And with Akara, once you buy the hub, the parts themselves are really inexpensive. Like you can buy some of them in bulk. Like you can get like 10 window sensors for like $50 or something. And then suddenly you've got window sensors on your whole house. And when you're in Europe, you know, if the windows open, right. And yeah. That and is their cameras are, are super cheap too. And actually the cameras, yeah. you can get the camera with a hub in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I bought a bunch of those, of those cameras as well. You ready to spend some money? I've got something for you to buy. Okay. All right. Yeah. Akara makes leak sensors. And the people who listen to the show know I've talked about these before, but I think they're about $15 a pop and you just stick them underneath the toilet and the water heater and whatever in your house. And if there's any leak, your, your home kit goes off. Like, you know, like the missiles are coming in. It's, it's great. And the, uh, you know, I, I always worry about leaks, you know, a leak in the house when you don't know about it is a huge expensive problem, especially in a two-story house. And this is like a no brainer. Once you own the hub, you just add the leak sensors too. So David, you know, I, I bought one of those last week. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, we had a, a plumbing thing here at home where um, like the kitchen, you know, the, the branch of the plumbing that would connect to like the kitchen sink and the washing machine would yeah. back up into the garage sink. Yeah. And, um, it wasn't like an emergency and, you know, we had to have someone come fix it, but I bought one of those sensors and I just, I don't use that garage sink a lot, but when I do, I can just take the sensor out of it. Um, but so that way, if any water gets into that sink without me being there, I'll get a notification. Now I know that you can also attach like just, um, wire to those sensors and you can actually hang, like put the sensor somewhere else, but hang the wire down like two wires. And yeah. the connection, the water makes the connection to, to complete the circuit, which would then, yeah. you know, let you know that there's a leak. So I'm going to get more of those because I was like, oh, I'm going to go under the house and I'm going to just start like putting those in like strategic places. 
Yeah. But you also want them like in the bathroom vanity and right. You know, right. all the places that leak, the water heater is another good one where people get a water right. heater leak and they don't realize it. And they're just so inexpensive. It it doesn't matter. And did you test it? Like, did you set it off? Like put it in water? I ha- no, I, I haven't yet. I, okay, I need to so do that. I tested mine and, um, and like my daughter who was up in LA, she goes to UCLA. She called me, she says, dad, there's a leak in the house, you know, because her phone is on our family plan. And, right. And so like, it really lets you know, and that's great. In fact, I had one go off once on the refrigerator and I, I'm like, Oh no, the refrigerator is leaking. And like, there's part of me that's upset that the refrigerator is leaking. And there's a part of me that's ecstatic that my system worked, you know, <laughs> right. you know, and then I go and I find out that the dog found it and was licking it and that set off the sensor. So uh, now I have to put it behind the fridge because the right. dog is interested in it. But the, uh, but it really is like stuff like that is great. And, and I think a Cara is particularly good for sensors, like, because to make a home kit system really sing, you want data and, you know, door sensors, window sensors, temperature sensors, leak sensors, all that stuff from a Cara is a fraction of the cost that it is from most vendors. And as long as you have their hub, you're good to go. I agree. The only other, like, so there's two other key home kit things that I use um, that have been super important. Um, one is a smart garage door opener. And I think mine is, I think it's Marasa Morose, I think is yeah. who makes it. And it's not the, like, it's just like that add-on thing that just, again, completes the circuit for you for the garage door opener. You just yeah. kind of wire it in. Yeah. Um, that's been great because I can, um, like in, ho- in, uh, in car play, like you get this little button when you get close to your house that says open garage door. So you don't have to fidget with, you know, like the, the physical opener. Yeah. Either on your car, you know, one of the ones that clips. And it's also nice because if I'm not home, I can always check to make sure the garage door is closed, but I can also open it if I needed to. When we were away, it was so hot that I actually considered just letting my neighbor know, hey, I'm going to open the garage door just to like air it out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So like you can do that like from 5,000 miles away. You can just hit it and your garage door goes open. Um, And the other one is the, in my office, I have a mini split like air conditioning heater system. Yeah. Um, Not home kit compatible, but there's this company called Misa. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and they have a little thermostat that works with a bunch of mini split units. You can just kind of program it to, to talk to it via infrared and um, it will connect to your home kit system. So now I can control my office um, thermostat um, from home kit. So I have it set up to like, you know, go to like 80 degrees at night and then cool down in the morning before I come in um, because I have the lights set up to the light switch i have it turn the lights on in the morning and then if i forget to turn them off it turns them off every night um so that's uh it's just nice like it doesn't have to be anything you know like next level like you said it just be like real real practical stuff like that yeah and mysa spelled m-y-s-a i'll put a link right. in the notes the the other akara thing you may want to consider this is the latest akara hardware and it's called a human presence sensor and oh. those are more expensive i think they're in about the 50 dollar range and they've got one that works with HomeKit that runs off Wi-Fi, which isn't ideal uh, Wi-Fi, but it's it's still good. And the it solves the problem of just turn the lights on when I come in and turn them off when I leave, you know, because there really hasn't been a good solution for that with HomeKit yet. Like they're like a motion sensor is great, but if you sit at a desk and work, the motion sensor eventually thinks you're not there anymore. Right. I've used that with 
um, my Echobee thermostat has, we have the motion and uh, temperature sensors in different rooms yeah. to help kind of balance the, the cooling. Um, and I've like, oh, I can like trigger that and it'll turn on the lights. And then I, I think I had it for one day and I was like, this is annoying because it turned the light out because I was just sitting there. Yeah. And like Rosemary, who's my co-host on the automators, uh, had a clever idea. She put um, a, a motion sensor and then she put a vibration sensor on the bottom of her chair. And she hasn't <laughs> looking at both of those things, but that's again, kind of getting more into home assistant and more advanced yeah. workflows. But but I feel like this human presence sensor is exactly what we need. I, I got one and it works. You know, you walk in the room, it sees that you're there, it turns the lights on. It doesn't turn them off while you're still in the room. Uh, the problem for me is because my workplace is a studio, I have different lighting setups and HomeKit mm-hmm. gets confused because HomeKit's like, no, but you wanted these lights on because there's a human here. I'm like, no. Now I'm going to shoot, so I need you to do different lights. But you, there's a human here, and I want to turn it. So you, you do run into problems if you get too advanced with it. But the uh, for the basics, I think that human presence sensor is really a nice addition. So you could spend so much money on HomeKit stuff. I, I feel like I've uh, I've spent some money just recording this podcast. Yeah, that that's okay. I hear that once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one that I think it's called the FP2 is the one that they use with HomeKit. I'll I'll put a, a link in the show notes for it. But yeah, it's and it, it's powered. You have to have it plugged in, which is kind of a bummer. But okay. you know, just think about it, you know, where you can stick it. But but it, it does make a difference. And and I I do think that HomeKit is ready for prime time. You know, I love hearing stories from people like you that are like, you know, you didn't like go into it with a bunch of research. You just started buying a few things and it works, so you bought more. And I think that's what, you know, the goal is here. It shouldn't be a thing where you have to get a degree to put, you know, home automation in your house. Exactly. And there's this, this, um, uh, this, this point where I, when I launched the home app, uh, like I think I had it when we we're traveling, I had it like on my iPad. Um, and I, I looked and I was like, oh man, look, there's like nine cameras and like all these like data that's, that's like yeah. telling me like how my house is doing when I'm thousands of miles away. That's pretty cool to see it all collected there together. Feels like you're living in the future. It does. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Clean My Mac X. Make your Mac good as new today and get 5% off. Just go to macpaw.app slash MPU. Our sponsor this week is Clean My Mac X. I like to think of Clean My Mac X as my own little Mac assistant. It takes care of all the little tasks for me that I don't want to bother with and I don't want to keep track of. Routinely, I open the application, hit the scan button, and well, I clean my Mac. With Clean My Mac X, you can get rid of junk files, hung processes, and malicious applications that slow down even the latest, most powerful Macs. Whether your machine is new or old, Clean My Mac X is an excellent partner in keeping your Mac running in top performance. It's an all-in-one Mac maintenance tool that takes care of the old junk and faulty apps and malware in an efficient and aesthetically pleasing way, and it's hassle-free. You literally push the button. It does the analysis for you. It tells you what it wants to do. You can say, yes, do this, but don't do that. Then you push the button, and it does that for you, too. That's two button pushes between you and a clean Mac. This app has been downloaded 30 million times, and the developers have 15 years of experience. One of the reasons why I like to use it is that they are constantly updating it. When there's a new Mac operating system, they're on top of it. 
They're constantly adding new features. Like they just got some great malware features added to it. And it's honestly really pretty. I've been using it since they first released the app, and I've really enjoyed watching the way it grew over the years. Of course, I like the optimization and maintenance features, but I also like the stuff on there. Like one of my favorite features is called Space Lens, and it looks at how you're using the space on your drive and gives you an easy way to adjust that and get rid of large and old files. The memory optimization is also helpful. If you start running out of RAM, it lets you know and helps you clean it up. It just takes care of all of the maintenance. Like I said at the beginning of the ad, Clean My Mac X is my little Mac helper. Maybe you need a little Mac helper too. And if you want one, you can get one for 5% off. Just go to macpaw.app/mpu and get yourself Clean My Mac X with 5% off. And our thanks to Clean My Mac X for this great software they've been making all these years and their support of the Mac Power users and Relay FM. Ryan, I uh, I love talking to you, but I always like uh, hearing from apps and services that guests like to use that we may have not heard about before. What are some of the little apps and services that bring you joy and delight? Yeah, um, I'm going to start with the one that is actually, I listed as, as a piece of hardware. Um, and you may have heard, people may have heard of this one. It's called the Roost Stand, which is like a, lap, a collapsible laptop stand. And the reason I bring it up is because it, goes in my either my carry-on or my check bag for almost every trip I take. And this is a like a laptop stand that gets your laptop up so you can view the screen at like eye height. Now because it's up like that, you do need to have some sort of like keyboard and mouse with you or trackpad. Um, but it's the best way that I know to to simulate like a normal desk experience when you're traveling. Like if you don't have that external display. Um, the worst thing is, you know, back and neck pain from hours of like hunching over a laptop while you're traveling. So I love that thing. I think these guys have been around a while. The Roost yeah, people, they have. I remember seeing them at Macworld in the in the day. Yep. And the thing that's impressive about it is how light it is because it's, yeah. you know, you, you see a light stand and you think, well, this is going to be a tipsy thing, but it's not. It's actually quite solid for for the weight to stability ratio. And there's a lot of knockoffs on Amazon that kind of like, you know, copy the design. Yeah. Um, I haven't used them. I have heard that uh, you, you want the real deal. Yeah. They're not cheap. I want to say they're probably 60 or $70. Yeah, I'm looking right now. It's $90 for the. Okay. Uh, so they're even more than when I bought it. For the version um, three. Yeah. Yeah. I swear by this one that I still have the original one. It's been to Europe, you know, several times. I take it, you know, on any trip where I feel like I need a to have a keyboard and mouse for work, you know, for like one day, one, two day trips, I'm okay with just like, uh, you know, using my laptop, but for extended trips where I'm going to be doing a normal work day, I definitely bring that thing with me. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't mention, um, uh, so I'm partners in a, an agency called Pineworks. Yeah. And, um, uh, my partner in that is, uh, Anthony Colangelo. He is a web developer, but also an iOS developer. He's a, also a big space and Mac nerd. He uh, has an app called Downlink, which allows you, and I have it running uh, on my on my iMac, and it basically downloads um, live space imagery or space imagery from from the what is it the it's like different like sources of like satellite yeah. imagery that you can yeah. download and has have as your desktop image, and then you can 
like rotate through them and stuff. Now, are these, because I'm looking at it, the, the one of the planet Earth with the, the cloud overlay, is that like current cloud coverage or just images? That is a good question. I think it's a, it was current as of the time it was downloaded, I think, but I don't nice. think it, yeah. And I think you can re-download them. It's really pretty. I'm looking at it right now. This is good. See, now you may cost me some money today. <laughs> uh, that one looks pretty good to me. I, I'm always looking for good wallpaper. And yeah. then, yeah. That's a good one. Um, let's see. A Another thing I use for like reading articles is Matter. And that is, what is it? Getmatter.com, I think is the site for yeah. that. Yeah. And it's like a read it later app, but it's, it's just got such a nice experience, especially on the iPad. Um, a real nice, if you pay for the premium subscription, you get like uh, highlighting and note-taking features so you can annotate uh, different notes. You can share your uh, articles that you've saved with other people and it, you can basically send them a link and it'll drop it directly into their Matter queue as well. Yeah, I this is this one is so pretty. I'm all, every time I look at it, I'm tempted. But I I'm a big fan of the the reader, um, yeah, app, and I feel like that one. You know, I don't know, man. It, it's you know, so so. But I mean, Readwise is that service that collects the highlights from your books, but they have Readwise Reader now, that is like a Swiss Army knife of collecting text. Yeah, and I. I can't make up my mind between do I want something that's just pretty and simple or do I want something that's super powerful? And I can make the case for both. That's the problem. The reason I chose Matter is because I just wanted to have something that was nice to read articles that I cared about. And that yeah. was it. And you can also pull in like your, you know, feeds from your favorite sites yeah. as well. All right. Another one is Fathom. Um, if anyone that's listening is familiar with, the privacy laws and data security laws out of Europe, like GDPR and, you know, those related uh, regulations and laws. Yeah. Um, they might know that Google Analytics um, is, you know, kind of a problem in Europe uh, to, in order to, to meet these um, privacy laws. And so a lot of people are offering alternatives to Google Analytics. And one of them is called Fathom. And that is essentially a website analytic tool that um, does not like hoover up your your data or your visitors' data. Well, that's and, nice. Yeah, and it's it's well designed. It doesn't seem like this like labyrinth of of uh, screens and settings like you do with, you get with a lot of Google stuff. Um, but it's paid, right? So you have to pay for it, and it's not integrated with you know the Google like paid placement services and ad you know Google Ads and things like that. So it's not for everybody. But it's one that I use for uh, for CraftQuest for for tracking um, ads. I'm sorry for tracking uh, traffic. So I understand just general trends of what um, you know what people are doing. For me, like the biggest indicator on my side of success or you know needing work is the types of people, the types of videos that people are watching, and then also the number of subscribers that I have. Those are more important metrics to me than just overall traffic. So I don't need everything that Google offers. I, I see you also have Loom on your list. I am a big fan of Loom as well. Yeah, Loom at Pineworks, Loom has become like a, a major communication device for like, you know, like, hey, I just got off a call with such and such and here's like the download on it. And it's like this async thing rather than typing up a big, you know, Discord message or Slack message, we can like record Looms and then just, um, you know, be on, on our way. 
do you use them for customer facing stuff too, or just internally? I have used them. If I need to demonstrate a, um, like a new feature or something like that, I, I can, I do a quick loom. Yeah. Um, I have actually a lawyer client of mine who I did that for. He's like, Hey, like, what did you use? Like, this would be so great for communicating, you know, some things with, with clients. Um, and so he just thought it was such a great communication device. Yeah. I mean, and I really agree. I feel like people who, uh, who don't want to get screen flow and like make professional screencasts, but want to be able to share a screen with somebody. Loom is so good at that because you just install it. It, they store and share the video for you. There is very rudimentary editing. So this isn't something you're going to like put into a field guide or one of Ryan's uh, courses, but it's something that you could make a quick and dirty video to show a coworker or a client something on the internet and they could absolutely have it in minutes. I, yep. I just continue to find uses for this. I mean, sometimes I got an email from somebody that was dealing with something hard and I didn't want to just write text back. So I sent her a little loom video and like I, I use it in some of the lab stuff I do. Uh, I am, uh, I'm very satisfied with my loom subscription. I agree. What is smart cards plus? I'm not familiar with that app. Smart cards is a flashcard app primarily for the, um, for the iPad or for iOS and iPad OS, but it, it's a universal app. So you can use it on your, um, on your MacBook as well. And we use it for, um, helping our daughter, um, create study cards for oh, studying nice. for tests. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I try to do is like, um, I kind of like try to like not preach, but share with the idea that, um, the best way to, to do well at things is to, to learn how to be a good learner, um, to learn how to learn. So, uh, one of those is, you know, having good study techniques and, um, and flashcards is a proven, you know, a study technique and smart cards plus allows us to create, you know, a, a stack of virtual, uh, index cards where we can have like a question and then you can flip it and answer. It tracks your progress and your percentage of correct answers. And then, uh, and we can just go over those with her, um, you know, before tests. And this is something we started like a year ago and it's a great app. There's tons of apps like this. All of them have some downsides, but smart cards plus is the one that, that we really uh, kind of latched onto and started using. Is she building them on her own now? That's Not when, yet, but that's, that's when the, you'll know that, that yeah. you, you've you've succeded when she starts. That's the goal, own. right? Especially at the age she's at, is to now you're just kind of like, okay, like this is now your time to take what you've learned and to go do this on your own. Um, but I, I'm just always trying to like plant seeds of like good habits and like good learning techniques. Nice, good dad, good dad. <laughs> we try. It doesn't always work. You know how this goes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in Texas. You were telling me that was you've had like 30 straight days of 100 plus weather now. Oh gosh, I think it's like 40, 47. It's it's something crazy. It's it's extremely hot here. Um, and we don't, there's a joke, right? Like in the summer here, we don't really look at the weather because it's the same exact thing every day. It's just hot and sunny. Yeah. Um, we haven't had rain since, I don't know, mid, it's been two months probably yeah. since we've had rain to keep things light. I use this app called carrot weather, which is, I'm sure a lot of people know this one and yeah. you can have it be various levels of sarcastic with you about the weather. Um, so I just like looking at the weather. I have a widget on my home screen. Um, no, yeah, it's on my home screen. Um, 
And I just like to see like this, like sarcastic, you know, remark from carrot weather about my, the, the weather in my, in my location. Yeah. You know, I should have loaded carrot weather over the weekend. We had a, a hurricane. Well, it got downgraded by the time it got to me and an earthquake. I should have loaded carrot weather to see what it would have been telling me about that. <laughs> it definitely would have called you a meat bag. That's like yes, its favorite thing to it do. Certainly would have, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's true. I mean, carrot weather is, um, is funny. And sometimes when Steve and I talk about, it, we're like, yeah, you can turn that off if you want. Cause I think a lot of people get turned off by it, but I have to admit, I've never turned it off. I think it's kind of no. funny. You can even go into the settings and like, say how snarky you want it to be. Like you can turn it up or down. So, uh, it, you know, if you want it to be even harsher, you can, <laughs> um, but the, uh, but the thing I love about it is it's a UI playground. It's like the developer it gives users the ability to build their own user interface in right. the weather app. I feel like that's like something that more developers should be looking into. Like even productivity app people, why not let me design the UI the way I think? Yeah. They have that great share screenshot functionality yeah. in the app. And I, like I send it all the time to people. If there's like a funny, like a funny little quip that yeah. it's telling me. Yeah. Yeah. Just such a delightful app. Yeah. And a really good weather app on top of it. I, I'm sorry, gang. We went a little long. I can't help myself. Uh, this is the when Steven's not here, it's kind of like the cat's away, right? But I'm so glad we got a chance to catch up and to hear everything you're doing and learn a little bit about web development and video learning. Uh, where do people go, Ryan, to learn more about your stuff? Sure. They can go to craftquest, C R A F T Q U E S T dot I O. Um, that's my training site. And then uh, also uh, Pineworks. Co. Um, and I also have ryanireland.com. That's really just kind of like a professional like placeholder site. Yeah, it's got but those are the main page. three places. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But those are the three main places of like the things that I'm I'm doing professionally. It's where they live. Well, we are the Mac Power Users. Steven should be feeling better and back with us next week. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. You can find the forums at talk.macpowerusers.com. Thank you to our sponsors, 1Password, Text Expander, Indeed, and Clean My Mac X, and we'll see you next time.